everyone. Welcome to Superwomen. Today's guests are Amanda Hesser, the CEO and founder of Food52 and president of Schoolhouse, Sarah Fritz. Schoolhouse was just acquired in an incredible $48 million acquisition. If you're not familiar with the home goods incredibleness such as Schoolhouse, I would say get with it girls because they are amazing. Today we talked about what it was like to build your company from nothing, what it took to succeed during the pandemic, and how as two women they're approaching and navigating both their personal and professional lives. Take a listen. Amanda and Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I'd love to find out how you first both met and then what led to this recent exciting acquisition. Sure. So this is Amanda talking. And I first met Sarah at Schoolhouse, at the Schoolhouse factory. And uh, that was because we had been looking at home companies for potential acquisitions and for you know, when we, our, our, our investor, our um, majority investor, the trading group, when they invested in, in our company in 2019, they said, you know, it'd be great if you could make a list of like, you know, companies that you love and that you like would be interested in acquiring someday, uh, you know, that might, you know, in case we are able to uh, make acquisitions part of our strategy, because uh, it seems like it, it might make sense down the road. And so at the top, very top of our list was Schoolhouse. It was just a brand that my co-founder Meryl and I both have loved for years. We've been customers um, and just admirers of the discipline of the brand, the purity, the real soulfulness of it. And you know, we'd been to the, their uh, store in Portland at the at the headquarters and just been you know followed the brand as just fans and admirers. And so when we got to the stage where we were really starting to think seriously about home companies, we, uh, re- we reached out uh, to Schoolhouse and, and, and very luckily they were at a point in their trajectory where they were considering acquisitions. And so <laughs> we flew out, we flew out to Portland and we met Sarah right on location and got a, got a tour of the, the factory. And I just felt like as I, the moment I, I met her, I felt like, oh, this is somebody who I, who uh, not only do I want to work with, I also want to hang out with. I love that. Yeah, so similar story from a, from a different angle. Yeah, the first time we met was when Amanda flew out and just having her fly out uh, and she came with a couple other folks. It was really meaningful to us that uh, I think that showed she was serious about this and understood that Schoolhouse is the type of brand and we are the type of people and I am the type of person where uh Despite a pandemic, despite uh, a million reasons why traveling is complicated for a deal that was this important and uh, an opportunity this big for all parties, she knew that coming all the way to Portland was was going to be the most efficient way to uh, understand you know, what the opportunity looked like. And we appreciated that so much. And similarly, I think I think you know, this opportunity was serendipitous and strategic all at once. Uh, we, we were ready to sell the company, but we had been um, open to that for a long time. And we were really patiently waiting for the, for the right opportunity. And in parallel with, you know, we weren't just waiting in parallel with that time, we were actively just making ourselves the best version of Schoolhouse that we could be. And the timing just really came together nicely that 
at the point when Food 52 reached out, I do feel like Schoolhouse was in an excellent position to to say yes. And I felt really similar to how Amanda described our first meeting. I felt like, uh, and I still feel like, gosh, I, I kind of just want to be friends with this person. And yet we have so much work to do. So our relationship is very much focused on all of the big opportunities that surround us. But uh, at the core of it, I think we have a lot of mutual respect and admiration and uh, isn't that what you want from somebody you get to spend your days with? Oh, my God, completely. What, what's amazing and probably very rare is, you know, from the from what I read about both of you, a lot of your early growth was bootstrapped. Uh, you did not join the VC game until way, you know, later in, in your case, Amanda, you know, later in your trajectory. So talk me through and each of you can share your own stories or maybe, you know, you have some out together what that felt like, because I grew my business with very little funding and people think there's a fantasy to just raising money, which has its own challenges, but then there's, you know, what happens when you don't raise money and and how that can be great, but also very painful. For Schoolhouse, we never had any investment all the way along. So 18 years, I was not the founder. I came on about six and a half years ago, but through that entire journey, it was entirely bootstrapped and For many, many years, that made a lot of sense. It gave us a lot of autonomy over who we were and where we wanted to take the brand. And even when I first started, it continued to make sense. But I would say over the last several years, it was becoming very evident that we were outgrowing that model. And yet, uh, as I said, as I indicated, we were eager to be patient and wait for the right opportunity. So there were plenty of chances to get or take investors on board, but we were hesitant to... um, to do that until we found the right partner. And there are pain points uh, associated with making a decision like that, a decision not to take money even when you could, and to waiting patiently to find the right partner. Um, But there's also benefits, and the benefits are when it's right, it it just really feels really good. And so we have no regrets over having waited so long, but it's a long time to wait, especially in a world of, you know, a lot of unicorns surrounding us. We always say we're kind of a workhorse in in a world of unicorns. And now it does feel like a brand new day. It's super exciting. We feel more supported than ever. We feel like finally we're well positioned to chase our potential. And yet all of the things that we did along the way when we were bootstrapping continue to serve us well. I think we're very disciplined and deliberate about how we spend money, how we make money, how we make decisions. And we're excited to continue that discipline that we've worked very hard to hone, uh, but bring it into a new world where we have all of this support. That's awesome. And what about you, Amanda? What was it like to grow Food 52? And and what made you then change to take on the investment later in the game? Well, we always knew it was a company that would need investment at some point. The reason we didn't in the beginning was actually influenced by an experience I had that you know predated Food 52. I I had left the I worked at the New York Times for many years and then I left in 2006 to pursue a, uh, a, a a startup that I wanted to do that actually had nothing to do with food. And I spent a year, I, I call it my, my like startup grad school year because I <laughs> spent a lot of, spent a lot of my savings and uh, learned a lot, but, you know, I started, a, I started a company and we built a prototype and we tried to raise money. And um, it was early, it was, 
it was sort of early in the startup community in New York or early enough, I should say that it was like amazing because you could get meetings with people like Fred Wilson and all, you know, meetings with really great investors. So I got exposed to this um, great kind of network of people, but I also learned quickly that through that experience that, you know, there were a couple, there are two different kinds of founders. There's founders who are really good at, you know, just selling an idea and not necessarily knowing what they're going to do or how they're going to get there, but they they're really they're really good at like captivating people, getting them excited, seeing the future, um, and raising money. And then there's the other kind of startup founder who tends to like to prove out things before they feel that they are confident enough to sell them. And uh, that is the much like less, less sexy <laughs> side of startups that you don't you hear much much less about, uh, and um, and that it was very clear to me that that was the kind of founder I was. I was not going to just sell an idea. I needed to sell something that I felt like I had really uh, a lot of confidence in and and understood how how I was going to get there. And that, that isn't to say like knowing every answer, but just having some semblance. It just wasn't like an idea that was you know scribbled out on a napkin and. So when Meryl and I started the company, you know, we we probably could have raised some money, but we felt like, and we did need funding, but we just felt like that wasn't the right move. It felt like we should, because we had an idea that, uh, you know, it was around two, it was at the end of 2008 that we started talking about this. So, you know, we're in a recession. No one, no one's interested in media companies. And on the surface, uh, our company looks like it's going to be a media company because we're starting with content, and certainly because my co-founder and I had, you know, deep backgrounds in in content and and media. So um, we just felt like, you know, sure we could try to raise money, but it's probably going to be uh, an uphill battle. And what we did know was that. Um, we knew how to sell a, um, or I should say, I, I knew how to sell a book contract because I, I had written a couple books at that point, and I knew that if you write, you know, with a book contract, you get a, an an advance, um, which is you know essentially funding to write your book uh, before the book comes out. And so what we did was we actually kind of uh, paired up our proof of concept for the site with a book idea, and then sold that book idea. And we actually were able to get a two book deal and get the advance for both books up front, which gave us $100,000 to work with. And we used that to bootstrap the company. And what was really great about that is that it was money that was, you know, I mean, it was, <laughs> we did have deliverables, we had to, you know, produce two books, which we did. Um, we were, were not worried so much about having to do that. But it was it meant like we weren't giving away equity or ownership of the company before we really had a handle on what we were building and had um you know had that really sort of strong storyline that we could go out and sell so it wasn't that long after that we launched that we did start raising money but we started with a seed round uh that we raised in 2010 and it was you know even then it was really we had a proof of concept we had traction we had domain domain expertise um, but it was tough and, you know, it took us like, I would say six to eight months to raise a $750,000 seed round, which of course is pretty much pocket change these days. I mean, it's incredible that you had that foresight because again, I, I think my listeners probably are tired of me saying how, how I want people to go through what you go through, what I went through and not just think that you need to raise. And in a time when, you know, you shared, you were media, you know, 
most people think, oh, Food 52, media, but obviously you have all these other categories and all these other pillars to your company. So how did you convince people when you did go to raise, you know, no, I'm not just another media company because we've seen the death of so many media companies, including ones, you know, recently as InStyle, which are like, they're never going to dry. It's InStyle, right? So I'm just curious how you approach that, that inflection point. Well, I think it was a combination of, of things. One, you know, I think that sometimes, especially in the early days, you know, you just have to get that one investor who is going to say yes, because there is a herd mentality and it's an understandable one among, especially among seed investors where they, they're, they're going as much on their like kind of trust of their colleagues, you know, other fellow angel investors as they are on like what you're selling them. Right. So they're looking for signals too. In fact, it, you know, there was this, our primary investor in our first seed round, uh, who was a big media person, Kenny Lehrer. And he, you know, he was, he said he was in from the beginning, but he wasn't writing a check. And I realize now that actually what he, his, his form of vetting was to like introduce us to a bunch of different other investors and like, see if we could convince them. And if we could get them on board, then he would be in because we would have essentially that would have like proven to him that, you know, we managed to persuade other people with our ideas. Even like, I think he had the conviction that we were going to, you know, that we were worth investing in, but he wanted to know. And so he was kind of using, um, you know, his, his friends and professional colleagues to like kind of help figure out whether or not it was, <laughs> it was worthy. And, and also I think to test and see if we had the grit, right. You know, because that's, that's so much, I think of what it takes to build a company is like, isn't the idea it's actually, do you, I don't know if you know, Andy Dunn, he's the founder of Bonobos. And he said something in an interview once that like, you know, founders don't fail, they give up. And I do think after you know twelve years of of doing this, I think that is so true. I mean, it really speaks to me now because I see that like you just go through so much even after you have even if you have lots of funding, right? And it's just it's a, it's really hard to build companies, and especially if you're you know you're trying to do something that's different and that people don't necessarily catch on to or understand right away. And, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, you can understand how people after a while sometimes might just be like, you know what, I'm done. Oh, yes. I think I think more people need to talk about that. <laughs> it can be founder therapy. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, like kind of wisely, you know, this, this Kenny, like, you know, was essentially kind of testing our initial grit, right, to see if, if we would push through and and be able to convince others because that's right. Like uh, so much of what you're doing is, I mean, it, it's not just about raising money. You're, you're selling your concept to your customers, to, you know, your, to the team you hire to, you know, you're constantly really persuading people to get on board and try and like take a risk with you. And so I think, you know, for, for any investor who's kind of making sure that you've got that, that um, determination is, is it's smart. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sarah, for you guys, you had mentioned that, you know, you're not the unicorn, you're the workhorse. How did you establish such rigorous discipline? Because again, I think that when you're starting out, at least for me, everything was a shiny object. And even though those were lots of opportunities, doesn't mean you should take them all. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it was, uh, it wasn't so much a choice that we had. I think that constraints really force you to prioritize. And sometimes that can be a good thing. And sometimes that's a really hard thing. But for us, and I, I tend to do this wherever I can, you take something that could either be good or hard, and you just lean into the good parts of it. So for us, I think those constraints were a gift. And we just got really tight about how we operated the business and really had to be thoughtful about everything that we that we did. And then layer into that the pandemic over the last few years. I mean, that, that's been a major challenge for every business. I mean, shout out to anybody leading anything over the last few years. Um, but for me, in the position that I was in at that time, I really felt like, and I'm talking, you know, two years ago when COVID was really coming on strong, and here I am running uh, – several retail stores and a factory. And I really felt like everything was on the line. And my my mentality was, I'd rather do too much too soon than too little too late, because I didn't, I, I just felt, you know, um, I felt like I would never regret taking a, an unprecedented global pandemic too seriously. So immediate, immediately, we just got into formation of what I called critical path. And, uh, you know, it was really just tightening what was already tight for us. But critical path at a place like Schoolhouse, which is a vertically integrated business, meaning we're running a factory, as well as all the other things that you would expect from a retail brand. Critical path is sell things, make things and ship things. And that's it. And we were going to do that only on the web was the decision. So as a leader, I, I had to make some really hard calls. We stopped printing catalogs, which we were very well known for. We closed all of our retail stores. We stopped developing product, and we're a product company. We immediately did layoffs, furloughs. We all took pay cuts. I mean, we really got serious because I felt like everything's on the line. And at that time, I, I didn't have much to offer my team except for you know the best leadership that I could give them. And so I got a framework together saying, hey, you know, our health comes first. And when I say that, I mean our personal health, obviously, but also the health of the business. I care so much about people and I care about people more than I care about the business, but it's the business that keeps us connected and that will be here for the long term. And so we had to put health first. Uh, I assured them that we are on top of it. We're staying tuned into what it means, um, you know, what the pandemic is all about, what the doctors are saying, what the government is saying. We had a promise to our team that we would stay very much on top of all things pandemic. And the third pillar of the framework was that this will impact our business. And we just kept saying, this will impact our business. We didn't know how, and we said, we don't know how, we just know that it will. And in that framework, we also had three clear goals. We wanted to emerge from the pandemic with our health, and that's like the world's health, the team's health, personal health, and the, and the health of the business. 
We committed to lead with transparency, even when there were really hard messages, uh, in including pay cuts, layoffs, et cetera. And at the end, we wanted to be proud of how we navigated that pandemic. So that takes uh, that takes a lot of courage uh, from everybody to just believe in each other and keep showing up. And I, I think the moral of that story is keep showing up, get through it. And, you know, there's good stuff on the other side of really, really hard things. But as a leader, I think we were all, you know, very tested through that period. Oh, for sure. Can you guys both share maybe one of the more trying moments during the pandemic where you were you were maybe experiencing that Self-doubt, they're like, can I keep going? Is this worth it? Does anyone care? Um, obviously, outside of your employees. But I think for me, you know, when we had to do some layoffs, right, that was probably the worst part of the pandemic for me because it wasn't, you weren't laying people off because they didn't do a good job. You were saying, well, we don't have retail stores. I can't keep you on the floor. Or, you know, we don't have a wholesale business. I can't keep you in sales. And so that was, that was my sort of moment of, is this worth it? But do you guys have one that stands out? You know, we did a round of layoffs in the very beginning. And that was, it was, you know, the first layoffs we had done. And it was, it, yeah, it was terrible. It was, you know, a big, it was over 20 people. It, it was really painful. Um, and we did, you know, we did pay cuts and, all, you know, across the board. And, uh, but I, I, you know, I think I would say one of the the good uh, moments was when we were able to get to a point where we could hire back some of those people. Um, you know, obviously some people had gone on to other things and, you know, um, but, you know, we, there are, you know, people on our team today, you know, uh, who came back and that just felt like a, it felt really meaningful, um, you know, because it, yeah, it was just, it was such a tough time. I, I, I would say outside of that period, which was the first couple of months of the, of the pandemic, then, you know, our business, we, we were in the unusual category of like, actually our business really took off. And so then it's kind of switched into the hardship actually towards the end of 2020 was just that, you know, we had a smaller team and we had our, our business was, you know, grew a hundred percent in 2020 and which is, you know, not, you know, very unusual at the you know sort of stage of our company. And it was just hard to keep up. Um, and then that was followed by like all the supply chain issues that we saw in 2021 and a lot of like uh, surprises. And it felt like nothing, you know, nothing that you planned was, would actually work out the way you had, um, sort of carefully plotted it out. So it's just been, honestly, it's, it's, there's no like one distinct moment. I feel like it's just been two years of constant, um, you know, uh, a, a constant balancing act and really, feeling, uh, feeling for our team, feeling like, you know, we need to, you know, wanting to find ways to support them. And yet all, at every turn kind of feeling like there, there are new, new challenges, there's new problems in the world, there's, you know, new COVID policies. It's just, you know, I think it's, we're, we're facing, you know, we, like as a team, I think our team is really just tired and, and we're not, a, and we're a business that has done okay. You know, I can't, it's just, I, I feel like this, this two years for, um, the workforce has been probably the, the most challenging. Yeah, similar over here. I mean, food and home, we both were well positioned to, to navigate the pandemic well in terms of demand, which, you know, I feel so grateful to be in, in that industry. Um, but uh, I relate to both things that you each shared. Um, Rebecca, yeah, laying off, you know, shutting down retail stores was so 
heart. I mean, that's the physical evidence of everything we believe in and it's the physical embodiment of our brand. And those were hard, hard days. Um, but sometimes I think short term pain is, is easier. It's more easily absorbed if you really truly deeply believe in the long term vision. And for me, that was let's do everything to keep this business as a business so that we can return to all of those things someday. And then similarly, Amanda, what you shared, uh, it felt so good to bring back folks that we had to say goodbye to temporarily. And we, you know, very similar story. We were able to reach out to most of those, to most of those people and bring them back. And that uh, continues to be a very rewarding part of, of this opportunity. So I'm curious, and I don't know if you get asked this a lot, Sarah and or Amanda, for both of you to answer, but now that you have this partnership and investment, what changed and what's remained the same? Because I think there's this fantasy of, oh, if I just get an investor, then blah, you know, whatever is going to happen, I'm going to sail off into my yacht on the sun, you know, in the sunset. <laughs> um, or you acquire a company and you're like, great, just keep operating as normal or not. Let's change everything about you. So like, what has that experience been? Well, I, I you know, I can't, uh, this is Amanda speaking. I, I can't imagine, you know, acquiring a company and then like sweeping in or swooping in and changing everything. I mean, I know that that, that is a strategy that some companies take. That's certainly not in line with kind of like how we think about acquisitions or even think, you know, how we think about company building. If you know, we've only made two acquisitions at this point, and it's Schoolhouse and Dansk. Dansk is a uh, home oh, goods uh, elevator. <laughs> it's yeah, great, and it's been, yeah. It's my off. mother is a huge collector, and God forbid I break one of her dance plates, I'm in deep shit. So I know dance well. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this, yeah, these, I mean, that's like, these are the kinds of brands that we love, right? These are like, they are, they take years and decades to build and they have soul and they have, they have meaning in people's lives and they get either products get handed down over generations and, you know, a schoolhouse's, you know, mission is to create modern heirlooms. And that to us like just really speaks to us. And so we're never going to buy a company that like, we're going to want to change a lot because it, like why otherwise why acquire it you know like we we feel like there's there are like great brands are few and far between and if we're going to be acquiring any companies we want to be you know kind of snapping up the ones that ha already have this great brand dna which we know is so hard to build and you can't you really can't manufacture and um and so yeah with schoolhouse it's like uh, it has it's the first time we've acquired a company that had a team and and schoolhouse's team is almost as big as ours you know we're about 170 people and you guys are i think 145 now right sarah correct yeah yeah. And so, and we're on opposite coast, which I actually think is, is probably a great thing because I, I think there's, there's less temptation, right. For there to be too much overlap. And, um, you know, we are like joining our teams at the hip in certain areas of the company. Um, but, but not in the areas that are really like affecting, um, ideally the, the brand and the creative teams and, 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 you know, ideally also the, the, the parts we want to preserve each is culture. We have, we do have quite different work cultures. And I think that as keeping that as sort of separate and, and celebrating that is, is important. Yeah. I mean, I can add to, I, I can add to that from my perspective a little bit. I think that uh, as I indicated, we, 
we, we were being patient and waiting for the right investor to come along. And so hearing Amanda describe the vision of how she thought they could take on Schoolhouse and that part of her vision would be to uh, help support us to be the best version of ourselves and protect our autonomy and keep us in Portland. And, um, you know, all of the ways that she described our integration were music to our ears. It's exactly what we were looking and hoping for in, in somebody that acquired us, somebody who could see what we had to offer and wanted to only you know support that and make it more successful um, was was really critical to how we wanted to move the brand forward. And so that's been wonderful. I'll also say that being three hours behind is kind of tricky. I wake up and I'm already three hours behind every single yes. day, no matter what, no matter what time I wake up, I'm three hours behind. Um, but I think there's a lot of positives to it as well. And we're, we're also just so early on the journey. I mean, this deal just closed in mid-December. And so it's all still brand new and we're figuring it out every day and taking our teams on that ride with us. Um, you know, helping to find ways that we can all define what integration looks like and what what synergies work and which ones don't. And there's a commitment from both sides to discover that. And if we need to fail fast, let's do it and, and learn from it and move on. And um, I think that we're finding great ways to to work together to figure all, all of that out. And so what would you each give to another woman and each, you know, you're both in very different parts of the transaction. And also, you know, while you're in spaces that overlap, you know, different elements to it. What would each one of you love to say as a piece of advice to another woman hearing this? Um, you know, the audience is primarily women and you starting out their companies or, or having the hopes and dreams to start a company one day. Well, so I, I, I'm going to throw something out there, Sarah. And I think you might totally disagree because I actually think one of the things that I like super admire about Sarah is like, she's really like clear and concise. Um, and I think that has been a really guiding force for her company. But I would say the thing that I, and I think I, you know, I kind of, I really just, this is like probably just general career advice is like get comfortable with ambiguity and don't think that ambiguity is always bad. Cause I think there is a lot of, I find that there's a lot of pressure in the business world that it's like clarity, clarity, clarity. And I think there's a moment for clarity, but I feel like if you can't be comfortable with ambiguity, you're not going to do anything interesting. I love that. I want to be more ambiguous. <laughs> I love it too. Yeah, I love it too. And uh, I think that Amanda and I are good, good compliments to one another in that way. Um, so if, if that was feedback for me, Amanda, I'm hearing it. Thank you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it really wasn't. I, I was like, Ooh, I'm just going to throw this out there and see how it lands. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I think my advice would be, and again, as you pointed out, Rebecca, we're on different sides of this particular deal, right? My, my company got acquired. Uh, and my advice to anybody in that position would be a few things. I think keep showing up. That's my advice to everybody in every scenario, professionally and personally, just keep showing up, keep showing up. Um, at Schoolhouse, we talk a lot about if you can influence it, then you're accountable. And so to me, that means like speak up, um, communicate what you're thinking and feeling and what you know, even even if you're not being asked. I think it's important to at least try to influence things. Uh, and certainly if you don't do that, then you can't later <laughs> claim to be upset about it or disappointed in it. And so I'm always encouraging my team, um, you know, if you can influence it, I do think that you're accountable for it. And the final thing I would say is... Um, I think it's really easy to think, oh, that's not possible or that's going to be really hard or that, you know, 
um, especially when being challenged to think bigger than you've ever had to think before. Uh, and I like to flip that on its head and, and ask people, what would it take? Instead of asking, hey, is it possible to do X, Y, and Z? I say, what would it take? to do X, Y, and Z. And, and it's important for me to do that to myself too. When somebody comes to me with a big idea, instead of thinking about why that's so hard, think what would it take to pull that off and communicate in that way? I love that. I love both of those. Those are great. I think nice perspectives. And it's, I would also say it's really rare to have two women uh, spearheading the companies and the acquisition. So it's refreshing to say the least to hear both of your views on it. Um, would love to just dive into, you know, how through building these incredible, like, to me, like, I'm on both of your sites and have bought products from both of you, you know, how you've navigated building something incredible and having a personal life or not, or how you've sort of made made sure to, to keep time for yourselves or family if you have and, and how that's looked for you, good or bad. <laughs> well... So I, there was, um, Nora Ephron once said that like, you know, yes, women can, you know, like women can have it all. They just have to choose which things they, they want. Um, something to that effect. And I, I always liked that because it felt like freeing kind of like, it's, it's not like there are limitations. It's just like, you're choosing what you want to, um, you choose what you want to do with your time and um, and how you want to spend it and who, you know, what you want to focus on, who you want to focus on. And so I think that kind of makes starting a company and having family and having friends and, you know, doing um, <laughs> other activities uh, kind of easier, right. And like less pressured because you're, you're just choosing, you know, what, which, which of those things you want to do. Um, and I, I've always just loved working, you know, and I love, I love creating things. And so this is a very, like, it's, it's something that gives me a lot of energy. And, you know, I think in many ways, I'm lucky because, because the topic area of like food and home also makes it makes it very easy to kind of have that work with my home life and my family life um, because they're all tied together. Of course, it means they're all tied together also. And, you know, I, I told this story before, but, you know, when my, my kids were, I have twins who are 15, it's a boy and girl. And when they were toddlers and they were playing with Legos, the first thing my daughter made with a Lego uh, with Legos was a laptop so that she could be like mommy. And, you know, I, I sure that could have like been like piercing to my heart, but I also kind of felt like, no, well, that is true. Like I, I work, that's like, she sees me working a lot and that's what I do. And hopefully I'm doing something, you know, she sees that I'm really engaged and, and interested in what I'm doing. And I hope that she'll find things that she feels really passionate about too. Yeah. I love that too. I think my answer is very similar. I mean, I love the Annie Dillard quote about how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. And I'm very mindful of that. And I love that and feel fortunate that Schoolhouse is the type of brand with values that align exactly to mine. And I think that's the key to anyone's success is to you know have alignment there. If you're going to spend your time doing the work, make sure it's work that you believe in. And I love spending my days with the Schoolhouse team. I love the team with all my heart, probably more than a person should. And we have a great time and we face some challenges together. And uh, we enjoy that. And I think uh, beyond work, I, I feel like I owe it to the team and to the brand to live those brand values. And for us, that means having a life outside of work. And I absolutely do that. 
I'm, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a friend, I'm a runner, I'm a, a lot of other things. In fact, I don't, I don't even know that work defines me. Uh, I think it's not how I would define myself at all. It just happens to fit perfectly into the things that I believe in and care about. So I've often said this is the job I would have if I didn't need to have a job because I just love doing it. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, I love that. You are both so refreshing, so inspiring. And I thank you for the work that you put out there and the creations and, and making, you know, the things that really matter. I think my home is my sacred place. And so you guys both have filled me there. Um, and thank you for uh, showing also other women that you can love what you do, have success, and also not have it be the only thing that matters to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. So just tell everyone quickly where they can find you, buy you, support you, follow you. Sure thing. Well, food52.com. And we've got a bunch of Instagram handles, but the main one is at food52. We're schoolhouse.com and our Instagram handle is at schoolhouse. Awesome. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithm. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again, and you will hear from me next week.